Faith matters. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a program devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this program is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1, Faith Matters, the name of the program, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. With that, it's my welcome to uh, it's my pleasure to welcome two esteemed uh, scholars within the Amdiya Muslim community as guests on Faith Matters. Welcome, gentlemen. Uh, welcome to Faith Matters. To my immediate right is Qasid Muin Sahib. He's a missionary here in the UK, and he's also uh, works within the Amdiya Archive and Research Center within the Amdiya Muslim community. Welcome, Qasid Saab. To his right is Maulana Abdul Ghani Jahangir Khan Sahib, who's the head of the center which services French-speaking uh, countries for the Amdiya Muslim community and also senior missionary here in the United Kingdom. Gentlemen, welcome to Faith Matters. We're going to stay in Europe for our first question which comes from Amna Manan from Germany. Assalamu alaikum and thank you for your question. Qasir um, Saab, if I could start with you on this. It comes uh, on the pretext of what we see unfortunately in many parts of the world, which is the issue of children suffering. And that's the sort of theme behind Amna's uh, question, that she says that if God has not prohibited or asked people to abstain from having more children for the fear of poverty and provision, since God is regarded as the provider, why are there so many people when we, you know, you turn on your television or you open up a newspaper or some internet news or whatever, there's often indeed, even between different programs, some charity or some particular organization who rightly are helping people in developing parts of the world. And the images which hit you are very striking and very poignant and at times they can be very disturbing because they're focused on how children are suffering. And so it's about how can it be that and why is it not, I suppose what I'm saying is, you know, why, if you're bringing someone, a child into this world, why, if you're aware of the fact that you cannot economically or financially provide for them? And why, indeed, if you know that the person or the child may suffer a very early death, why have the child in the first place? Exactly. The, there is the Quranic injunction, the Islamic instruction of, um, you know, not abstaining from children for the mere reason of poverty. And this mm -hmm. has been mentioned in the Holy Quran. But we need to refer to the actual verse where this has been mentioned. In the Quran, this has been mentioned uh, twice in reference to abs not abstaining from um, having children due to this poverty. It says, one of the, one of the verses where this is mentioned is, That do not kill your children for fear of poverty. That we shall provide for them, we shall sustain them and yourselves. That surely their, uh, the, the killing of them is surely a, gr a grave sin. Um, this has been mentioned in Surah Al-An'am and Bani Israel. These two, uh, similar, you know, it's been mentioned similarly in another place. Now, 
like I said, the first part of the verse is do not kill your children for fear of poverty. What's interesting to note here, and this is the meaning which will, uh, this is sort of, you know, what will decide what the whole context of this verse is. Imlaq literally means, according to Akrab al-Mawarid, that having become destitute as a result of spending money, and this has been endorsed by um, Hazrat Khalifat al-Masih II in his Tafsir al-Kabir, which is his commentary on the Holy Quran. It says that imlaq literally means the um, becoming destitute or becoming poor as a result of spending money. So in actuality, what is said here is that you should not refrain from having children due to the fear of um, becoming, um, you know, Destitute. destitute as a result of spending money. Mm. Hazrat Khalifatul Masih II in his exegesis, he elaborates on this further and he says that there are many types of parents. You know, there are those types who hold back in terms of the, you know, the welfare of their children when um, dressing them is concerned. For instance, their clothes, they won't dress them accordingly to the weather. You know, especially here in certain, there are weather conditions in the United mm. Kingdom where if you don't dress appropriately, if you don't cover your neck properly, especially the neck, you know, you, you are more prone to catching a cold or a flu. If the child is being deprived of nourishment or the lack of, um, you know, appropriate sustenance in terms of food, that can cause harm to the child as well. And if the reason is merely, you know, so that we don't become poor, so that let's give the child a little less than what is normally required. This is what the Quran is, is, is in fact saying, that you should not refrain from spending the appropriate amount on the children or sustaining them in that way, um, that which is necessary, basically. Or, for instance, some parents, they have the means, and this is a problem which is prevalent throughout the world, that some parents, they do have the means to send their children to a you know, decent school, to have, you know, provide for them decent education, but they won't. Um, they'll hold back on that uh, expenditure and they'll use it for another you know, financial uh, ex uh, expense head for, for another uh, sort of necessity they may require. This is what Islam discourages in this verse, that when you have children, just because you know, spending money may cause you to become poor, that should not refrain you from providing for your children. God Almighty has called the man in the house that, you know, he is the... Um, he is the, you know, he overlooks basically as the breadwinner. He overlooks the, the the financial side of the house, especially. And so, having attributed this responsibility upon the man, or given this responsibility to the man, the man, well, both parents, in fact, they should not withdraw. Should they should not withhold from spending their um, money on the children. So, having explained this, what's necessary to understand is that this, the circumstances in this verse, they they. Um, refer to the child having been born. Mm. This is not before not the child. Yeah. yeah, Islam says that yes, family planning or you know, unnecessary family planning it has been dis um, discouraged. Uh, discouraged. Mm -hmm. But the parents should, according to their circumstances, they should definitely. Um, for instance, if you're living in a very dire situation and you're very you're struggling to merely so you know um, earn for yourself. Even in that situation, the Holy Prophet said that that nikah is from among my um, you know, practices and whoever does not follow my practices is not from me. Mm -hmm. So nikah, marriage, is a practice of the Holy Prophet. You should get married, mm -hmm. but it's up to the couple to decide um, among themselves whether they want one, ch one child, two children, or you know, for mm -hmm. that matter, they want ten children. It's entirely up to them. 
Kassasab, and there's the crux of it, uh, Sab, because as Kassasab's pointed out, this is about whether the ch child has been perhaps not even born, but certainly conceived that parents shouldn't look in the context of financial provision. And quite often, one of the, uh, the practical sort of results of lack of family planning, lack of education that we see in certain parts, developing parts of the world, is down to the fact that they have, you know, <coughs> people have children, families have children. And actually, they cannot, you know, in any sense provide for them. They can't provide basic shelters or support. In that context is the importance, I suppose, of family planning within the context of a couple being married and what they then seek in terms of their own children. You see, this de it depends on, on the set of circumstances. Mm. There's not one rule for, for, for everybody. Mm. And this verse actually has a very wide application. First of all, there's the, there's the application which uh, Kassad Saib has mentioned here. But there's also the fact that which you've just alluded to uh, which is when a child has already been conceived, mm -hmm. that they should not try to abort just because they think they won't be able to look after the mm -hmm. child. If the child is now on the way, mm -hmm. then you have to let the child come. You can't mm -hmm. kill your children literally. But this verse is also addressing the believers. And when Allah says, Abna'akum uh, and Nisa'akum and all this, your sons, your women, it doesn't mean just your own children and your own women. It means all the, the boys and all the women in the body of believers. So if this verse is addressing the believers as, in, uh, as a totality of, of, the, of the group of believers in, in its totality, then Allah is saying, don't kill your children, which are not necessarily your own biological children, but they're children of the believers. They're all your children. Don't kill them because you think that by, by feeding them, you're going to be destitute. You're going to be poor. And this is a dire warning to the, the rich, especially the oil-rich Muslim nations of today, where we see that they have ample means mm. to end all hunger, not only in Muslim states which are Muslim. fighting, mm. but even non-Muslim states as well, had they the will to do so. <clears throat> Just because they think that they might lose out, you know, they're going to lose their money, they're going to get poorer, so they don't help them. And so literally they're, they're allowing these children to die. So Allah said, is also saying to them, don't kill your own children. These are also your children, you know. Don't forget, Allah says, the warning is this, which was in the verse. I provide for them, but I also provide for you. And today's rich could be tomorrow's poor. So if you don't behave properly, I could remove everything from you. And then you'll be in a worse uh, you know, set of circumstances than the very ones you, you refuse to help today. So there's also that. But then there's, there's the, the collective, you see, when you take it as a collective responsibility, not just on the level of the, the mother and father, mm -hmm. then you have to also see that there is enough, and you can quote so many uh, sources on this, but I, I had a look at the World Hunger website, mm -hmm. and according to them and to everybody else who's interested in the matter, the world produces enough food by far to feed everybody on the mm -hmm. planet. There's enough food to feed like 10 billion people right sure. now as we are in this point, at this point mm -hmm. in time. So the, it's the distribution which is the problem. It's the economic programs which are the problem. It's the politics that are the problem. It's not the amount of food available. Now that brings me to that last point that you, you raised, which is should uh, people go for family planning? Now you see, if you're in an urban environment, the constraints there are of a different order. They're not of an or the order of can I provide you know, food for them or can I keep them alive? 
It's more about where do I put them? Because not everybody will have access to adequate housing. And once Zakhifa Rabe, the fourth caliph of our community, Rahimahullah, he said that this is a genuine uh, you know, uh, problem where people know that they have, for example, a two-bedroom flat and because of their means, they are not going to be able to get anything more because there's nothing available on the market for, for, for starters. Mm. So where do they go? They have to work there, they have to live there. So they have to live where, wherever they get, whatever, in whatever they get. Mm. So if there's room only for one child or two children, then that's what it's going to be. But if their means get enlarged and they can move into a bigger house, then maybe they can have more children. So there it's a matter of space. Mm. But when it's a matter of feeding them, many um, charitable organizations on the terrain in Africa and other countries have noted that having large families in very poor environments is actually beneficial on the whole for several reasons. Very valid reasons, very reasonable you know, uh, points that they put forward. One is that because of disease in those countries, because poverty usually goes hand in hand with disease, people who are poor can't afford good health care. Mm -hmm. So what happens is, if there's a family, let's say, of 10 children, which will be, of course, the disparity in age then will be enough <coughs> that the, the, the older children will be able to, 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 to you know, win the, their own bread, then if, for example, the parents fall ill or the, the main breadwinner falls ill, mm. some of the children can step in. Mm -hmm. Also, there's the case of, um, uh, for example, more people create more services. Mm. There are all these different aspects. So the more people there will, be, the, 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 there will be, you will see more services, more shops, more of everything will start cropping up, more opportunities will crop up. Whereas if they only had one or two children, and, the, and uh, those children are very small and the parents fall ill and the, the demand for these things are not, is not there therefore so the, the services also are very reduced people suffer much more so they say that after very long studies that have been carried out in different countries they've found that on the whole overall having larger families is beneficial to the people and helps them to pull them out of poverty mm -hmm. yes and reducing the number of children in that set of circumstances is detrimental on the whole. There was, of course, there were exceptions. It depends on the on different families, on their circumstances. But on the whole, that's what's been observed. So this thing about going around preaching the use of uh, uh, family planning in poor countries has been greatly detrimental to those countries after so many decades of this family planning thing going on. Whereas in the case of urban environments, it could have an, uh, a beneficial effect, as I just mentioned, because there it's a question of space. And people who, who live in, for example, places like Singapore, Hong Kong, and places like that, that are heavily overcrowded, they will know firsthand you know, what the constraints Challenges. are. There it could be beneficial, but not in every set of circumstances. And as you said, the, the verse, indeed, both of you, it has quite wide application as well. And too often people see it through a rather narrow prism. And indeed, your very pertinent point about that the concept of children should be looked about mankind and hum humanity and responsibility towards humanity, not just to one's own family. And my thanks also to Amna Manan for the question. We're going to travel to the United States for our next question. It comes from Mukhtar Mahmoud Sahib. Assalamu alaikum, Mukhtar Sahib. Um, this is an interesting question on just generally. Um, we live in a world where, again, we've talked about different prisms of how things are viewed. 
and people have their own judgment of what constitutes success. You know, what is a successful man or a woman? What is a success in terms of one's personal progress? And some judge it by money and so on and so forth. And what Mukhtar Saab is actually asking is, is there a sort of test that Islam applies? Jangir Saab, perhaps I could start with you on this, um, which actually determines the success. <coughs> is someone successful? I mean, if you go into the, into the details, then the, the, the Holy Quran and the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, have given different things which, are, which you know, people should be aiming for to be considered successful. But overall, the Holy Quran kind of encapsulates it in uh, these very uh, short verses, two verses uh, of the Holy Quran. And there are verses 10 and 11 of, of the 91st chapter. And it says, قَدْ أَفْلَحَ مَنْ زَكَّاهَا وَقَدْ خَابَ مَنْ دَسَّاهَا so it means tr he indeed truly prospers, or is truly successful, who purifies his soul. And he who corrupts it is ruined. So the whole thing about Islam is to the purification of the soul. Mm -hmm. That's what it's all about. All the good deeds we're called to, 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 to do, all the worship of God we're, we're asked to do, all the things we're asked not to do, it's all about purif purifying our soul because whoever has done that has truly succeeded in life. Now, it will, it will then, if you have to apply that to a real life situation, mm. it will mean that whatever we're doing in our life, we have to opt for that, the path which will lead us to more nearness to God rather than going further away from Him. So we know that all day long we have choices. We can either do this, this or the contrary. We, we, we have options before us, and what, that can be applied to anything. So we should always go for that option, which is the one which leads us closer to God, because whatever leads us closer to God leads us to more purification and therefore more success, you see. So it's so about self-purification, <coughs> it's how one measures. Augustus, I'm just on this before we move on. Again, people, as, our, as Mukhtar Saab says, too often they'll say, oh, these people, oh yes, should be judged in wealth and how much, how successful <coughs> they are in money. Yet. Again, there's evident examples, and you see it, that some of the most wealthiest people um, are often not amongst or counted amongst the happiest. And sometimes you see people when you travel around the world who perhaps by even your own personal perspectives don't have much from a monetary or worldly perspective, actually are quite content and satisfied and happy in their own lives. Absolutely, I totally agree actually. I had the good fortune of um, uh, visiting uh, you know, uh, uh, Ghana and uh, I spent some time in a village, and there, the, you know, the, 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 the Ghanaians who I saw there, and who I got to speak to, they, they, they took pride in the fact that, you know, we're so content, and it, it's a known fact now, that, you know, the, 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 the less things you have to be frustrated about, I won't say the less things you have, but the less things you have to be frustrated about, yeah. that's the more happy you are. And because they live such simple lifestyles, you know, they don't have, they, ha they hardly, met, not many of them have a television. I mean, in the area that I was living in, maybe one or two televisions were there. PlayStation is completely out of the question, you know, your, your, your in entertainment, etc., stuff like that. It's maybe a radio, you know, that's the furthest you'll get to, a, to entertainment throughout the day. But these things, because they don't have 
anything to be frustrated about. For instance, you know, a person living here, he has to pay for his internet bills, he has to pay for his you know, telephone line, he has to pay for tele television licensing, etc., etc. And it just goes on and on. Somebody said recently, that my idea of hell is leaving home and forgetting my iPhone at home. Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> it's it, a new it, kind of suffering. So reliant on it. Exactly. Yes. I mean, you know, the the, the concept of of, of um, torture has become so different to what it was before, or for other places in the world. So I t I do totally agree that it's not that the people who are more rich are the most happy. But at the same time, if you, you know, there are many among the Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat who I know who are very wealthy. And yet, because they're using that, not only that wealth, but their mindset, it's about mindset as well. You know, both these things go hand in hand, what you're doing in life, what your purpose in life is. You know, Martin Luther King once said that um, a man who has nothing to die for, a man who has no purpose for, him, uh, for himself to die for, he isn't fit to live. We, by the grace and blessings of Allah, you know, this, and this is completely true, we, by the sheer grace and blessings of God, we have a purpose that we are all living for. You know, everyone who is an Ahmadi who claims to be associated with Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad Sahib Islam, the, the promised Messiah and Imam Mahdi, because he made everything so transparent and so clear for us to understand, even the richest person in the Jamaat can understand his purpose of life. And because of that mindset, he is a very happy person. So it's all about, you know, I think both these things go hand in hand, mindset and um, how you, you know, use your wealth. And I just, before I move on, on the wealth question, it's interesting when you see how philanthropy has grown in the world. And, and then you, you do take your hats off to people like, for example, Bill and Melinda Gates. You know, here is a man through Microsoft, billions, as he said it, more billions than he knows what to do with. But then he suddenly thought, how can I actually practically make that wealth work, not for me, but in terms of humanity. And it's interesting you draw the parallel with certain countries in the world who probably have the wealth. But here's an individual who's actually been highly successful and yes, wealthy, but is actually now applying that wealth for social good. Well, he's doing the right thing, you know? And, and the thing is, anybody can do that, even the poorest of the poor, and we've seen it within our community. People who only own, for example, a cow, will happily go and sell the cow and offer the money for a good cause, although their whole livelihood depended on that. So that's a very laudable thing to do. But there is one question which remains, and it is sometimes people, while trying to be successful, they face a series of um, you know, setbacks and they, they just keep, to, keep on failing, you know, failure after failure after mm -hmm. failure. Um, and they don't really know whether, they, whether this is the right line to pursue, should they continue with this or not? Uh, or should they just drop it, you know? Um, for, for those people, and there are ma surely many of them out there, uh, my personal advice and very humble advice would be to turn to the Khalifa of the time, the Caliph of, of our community. Whether they're Ahmadi or not makes little difference. And they can ask him for guidance. Uh, tell him that this is what we're doing and these are the, the yeah. failures we've been facing so far. Should we continue or should we drop it and go to something else? And he will be able to guide you on the, the, the line you know, of action you should take. Mm -hmm. And that also is a great blessing that we have in our community, which removes such great you know, burdens from our minds and our shoulders, uh, that we can turn to our caliph and ask him to, for guidance in these very difficult matters. Yeah, a very <coughs> appropriate way to sum up our discussions there, Jangri Saab. Saab, thank you very much. And uh, my thanks also to Mukhtar Mahmoud Saab for his question. Um, our next question comes from Nasra Mansour Sahiba from here in the UK. Um, she's referring to a particular chapter of the Holy Quran, chapter 17, verse 73, and I quote, but whoso is blind in this world will be blind in the hereafter. 
and even more astray from the way, end of quotes. And she's just asking whether we can elaborate upon the true meaning of this particular verse. Well, we know that the hereafter is a spiritual realm. It's not going to be as physical as we you know, know uh, of here, mm -hmm. because obviously this, the, the, the physical or you know, the, the tangible proofs that we see here uh, before us, this has all been created by God Almighty. And there is an elevated status that we'll be raised mm -hmm. to when we return back to our Lord, as the Holy Quran does say, that return back to your Lord in a very content and uh, blissful manner. Now here, by obviously mentioning that we can understand <clears throat> that the blindness in both of these circumstances is spiritual blindness. And we know that there are, um, you know, that there, there is guidance which God Almighty has provided mm -hmm. through his prophets, through his um, scriptures. And those who do not believe in such things or refuse to accept God Almighty, they are those who are blind, who refuse to, despite the signs, you know, in, in the Holy Quran it states, that inna fi samawati wal ard, and it goes on that surely in the creation and the heavens of the earth there are signs for those who you know the men of understanding the people of understanding mm -hmm. those who wish to understand um, they can understand the signs of their lord they can pick up signs and realize that all this is no um, you know it's it's not the happen it's not the miracle of just you know mere chance it is a miracle of a specific being. Mm -hmm. And that being we refer to that being as Allah the Almighty, God Almighty. So those people who deny all this, they will be blind in the hereafter. What is in the hereafter? The hereafter has many you know, um, pleasures and beauties in it where you gradually you can excel in ranks and you can you know, see the delight of um, Allah the Almighty and where you know, we've been promised so many things in the Holy Quran and you know, the question I can refer to that, but these things, Gradually, obviously, as um, the Holy Quran has told us, that gradually every person will, gradually he has the chance and the opportunity to excel in ranks. How do you excel in ranks? You know, even if a person denies God, he has certain good deeds, mm. which he is also doing at the same time. For instance, in the United Kingdom, we know that where the belief in God is, has completely or is gradually evaporating from you know, the face of mm. this country or the face of the Western countries, I should say. Instead of that, they are doing such good deeds at times, which you know, it potentially could you know, help them in uh, not only this life, but in the hereafter. Mm -hmm. For instance, giving to charity. We know that these people are very um, particular in giving to charity and giving to the less fortunate. So you know, these are all cer certain things that we can mm -hmm. um, ascertain. But obviously, it, it is all you know, down to God how the dealing of everyone, in essence, you know, will be in the hereafter. But that is a certain, you know, just a, just a gist of what has been mentioned in this verse, that it's not physical blindness, it's spiritual blindness that is being mentioned here. Thank you very much for that. And my thanks also to Nasra Mansoor Saiba for her question. Our next question comes from Vakar Ahmed Sahib from Canada. Um, he's uh, referring to issues of democracy, but sort of governance in particular, but also how you react to that governance. And his first, he's got a couple of questions, perhaps we could take them together. One relates specifically to if you can't vote to change the government, so perhaps a referral to areas where you have dictatorships and particular types of rule. Uh, theocrat you know, theocracies have been established. And equally linked to that, that sometimes even within democratic structures, he asserts that you can't actually make your voice heard through the ballot box alone. Taking the first element, Jankee Sabo's question, 
Is there any justification he's asking that some resort, as we've seen tragically around the world, to terrorist actions against a state, against a particular form of government? What's the Islamic teaching in this respect? The general teaching is, under all circumstances, we have to obey the government, the ruler of the land, unless he asks us to do something clearly sinful. For example, if he asks the people of the land to go and steal each other's wealth, then the, we will not obey that. But that doesn't mean that we're going to start taking up arms and start creating a re revolution within the country. Of course not. It will just be a kind of civil dis disobedience then in that case, which will, which will be called for. <clears throat> but there's actually, um, there's a whole chapter in, uh, in the Sahih Muslim, which is one of the major sources of, of uh, hadith, or the words and practices of the Prophet Muhammad in Islam. And the chapter is called, Obedience to the ruler is forbidden in matters sinful, but is otherwise obligatory. Now, under this, there are some very, very stark uh, directives which have been given by the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu to Muslims. He said, for example, and this is reported by Abu Huraira, <coughs> and uh, it's uh, the Hadith 4524. Um, he said that it's obligatory for you to listen to the ruler and obey him in adversity and prosperity. So whether you're in adversity or prosperity, that's, ir that's ir I mean, irrespective, you have to obey him. And he said, in pleasure and displeasure, and even when another person is given rather undue preference over you, even then, you still have to obey the ruler who's, in, who's been placed over you. Then we have in uh, the same book, in Hadith 4554, where we see the Prophet Muhammad saying that you will listen to the ruler and carry out his orders, even if your back is flogged and your wealth is snatched, you should listen and obey. So that means that even if a ruler is unjust towards you, but for the mere fact that he's your ruler and there has to be a rule of law, there has to be law and order, mm -hmm. you are not allowed to rebel against him, you have to obey him. And um, in the, still in the same book, here we have uh, Hadith 4573, um, he said that you will have some rulers who you will dislike. So he was asked, Shouldn't we overthrow them with the help of the sword if we dislike them? He said, no. He said, as long as they establish prayer among you, and that means that they allow you to pray, if they're not interfering in your, in your prayer, your con congregational prayer or otherwise. He said, if you then find anything detestable in them, you should hate their administration, but do not withdraw yourselves from their obedience. Mm -hmm. So it couldn't be any clearer. So even if we don't like the rulers, as long as they're not meddling in our religious affairs to the degree that we can't even pray, then in that case, we, also, we have to obey them. And for rulers to arrive at that point in their administration is really a very extreme thing. We do see it in certain countries of the world today, which are totalitarian regimes, where this is done. But then Allah has an answer for that as well. He said that he's going to ask the people, that why, uh, how come you, you, know, you behaved in such a way you didn't, you didn't do this or you didn't do that? So they'll say, well, it, it was because of you know, the people who were put above us, the forbidders. So God will say, well, wasn't my earth vast enough for you? Why didn't you emigrate? Why did you stay there? You could have moved, you know, moved out of the, 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 the circle of their rule. But they didn't. 
So they will be, they will be held responsible, even though, in, I mean, from one angle, you could say they were kind of innocent. It wasn't their fault. Mm. But this is how people have to react to that. And this is what we saw the Prophet Muhammad do. When he was being persecuted in Mecca, he was persecuted for over 10 years in Mecca. But he did not rebel against the government there, even though people were being killed, people were being dragged in the streets, as we were just talking about that a little while back. Um, so the, the thing is that he emigrated, <coughs> you see, to get out of that sphere of persecution. So this is what believers are called to do. Then, of course, if people come and attack you and try to destroy you, that's a different set of circumstances. How you're going to respond to that to, mm. as a matter of self-defense. But while you're under the, a, ru a ruler, you have to obey him or her. That's very clear, Jangi Saab. And I, I, I suppose looking at Vikar uh, Saab's questions, Ghassan Saab as well, first of all, it's very clear that terrorist actions of any kind in no ways in any way, despite what some who are hijacking Islam may misrepresent, can be justified uh, under the banner of Islam. You know, terrorism and Islam are, are, are you know, polar opposites. They cannot, and uh, you know, be taken together. However, you know, just picking up on Jungi Sub's point, protests are made in different forms, which is a sort of second element of the question as well. And again, from what Jung Hu Sub has said, it's very clear that as long as the state is not interfering in your worship and your remembrance of God. Um, but then equally, there, there have been occasions in Islamic history, again, during the time of the Holy Prophet, peace, peace be upon him, where there came a time where the level of persecution and attacks against Muslims had reached a level whereby there was a, that set for self-defense, which we're going into the areas of jihad, as it's called. But the first essence and the, first, the, the primary jihad is very much about improving yourself, showing through your personal example, self-striving. But the second one, where you can take up a response or a retaliation, there's quite specific sort of rules of governance there as well within Islam. In, in terms of jihad, you mean? Yeah, in terms jihad of in Islam and responding to someone who's perhaps now got to that point whereby even your basic human attribute of being able to worship God, you are unable to do. Absolutely. In terms of, um, <clears throat> I would say, you know, the, the, these scenarios can vary from age to age, from you know, generation to generation. And the, the state of the world that we see today, I remember covering this in a previous program as well, um, that until and unless, you know, the world declares, because nowadays, like, uh, you know, we've been mentioning that there are certain blocks I think we mentioned this in the last program, that there are certain blocks in the world and these are being formed. Um, or if a certain country, you know, it openly declares war against Islam as a whole. Only then can you respond in that, in that manner. But now you see Islam has, is not as it was before. Islam was, is not situated in one specific area. Islam is in Russia, Islam is in Australia, Islam is in Mecca and Medina, yes. But it's spread throughout the land. So if it, it, it's very difficult for someone to say that I'm openly declaring war against Islam. And furthermore, the promised Messiah um, purpose, one of the purposes that he came for in accordance with the prophecy made by the Holy Prophet Muhammad وسلم, was that he would الحرب, that he would put a halt to, um, to warfare, to religious warfare. And that is what we believe. That, and it, it all goes you know, hand in hand with today's uh, scenario. You see that today, no one is openly declaring war against Islam. 
it is not, it, it's, yes, there could be a sort of logical war against the doctrines of Islam. <clears throat> and we've also mentioned this, that we are replying in that same manner. You know, we, this program, the, the very nature of this program, one of the methods, one of the reasons for uh, this program and the various programs on MTA International, on the internet and various activities that the Ahmadiyya Muslim community you know, goes through is to dispel the false doctrines which people have attributed to Islam and to shine, you know, the real teachings of Islam as taught to us by, you know, originally taught to us by the Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And just, you know, carrying on from what Mawlana um, Jahangir uh, Sahib was mentioning, Islam completely nullifies and does not at all encourage, but in fact discourages rebellion of any sort. If you are being told to do something by the law of your land, there is the option to, you know, um, to either make your voice heard in a very peaceful manner. You know, you can write today, you can write letters to your prime minister, to your president, to your head of state. You can even participate in a silent sort of protest. And a silent protest, it does include writing a letter, you know, it does include making your voice heard, but it doesn't include rebellion. There is a differentiation and that needs to be, you know, every person can decide and can decipher between a silent protest and rebellion. What I want to uh, narrate is a very interesting hadith which I came across, and um, I'll conclude it on this. This is from Sahih Muslim, Kitabul Imara. One companion, he approached the Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and he, you know, he said to him that we lived in an evil time, yani the Jahiliyyah, uh, which uh, was the time before Islam. And he said that we lived in that time, and God, God, uh, God Almighty brought to us a good time. Will there be a bad time after this, after this good time? The Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said yes. The companion asked again, he said, will there be a good time after this bad time? Mm -hmm. The Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, yes. Then he asked again, will there be a bad time after this good time? He said, yes. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he alluded to this further and said that there will be leaders who will not be led by my guidance and who will not adopt my ways. There will be among them men who will have the hearts of devils in the bodies of human beings. I said, what should I do, Messenger of Allah, if I happen to live in that time? He replied, the Prophet Muhammad said that you will listen to him and carry out his orders. Even if your back is flogged and your wealth is snatched, you should listen and obey. The Prophet Muhammad and Islam in general, and this is the point I want to conclude on, it has two responsibilities. One responsibility is to those in authority. One responsibility is to the subjects, the law-abiding citizens or the citizens of a land. The responsibility of both are completely different. One is to justly you know, um, govern their state or their land or their area of governance. Mm -hmm. And the other's responsibility is to obey in a very appropriate manner. And obey, obeying is ultimately what Islam promotes. Jazakumullah, gentlemen, a vast subject, which I'm sure again, because of the context of the question and the world we live in, we will return to again, but very clear and um, guidelines as to um, observance and adherence to um, governments that rule over you. And I think often forgotten, unfortunately, by those who are claiming to act in the name of Islam around the world. Um, we'll move on to our next question with thanks to Vakar Ahmed Saab for his questions, which comes from Ruban Abbas Sahib. Um, on this, uh, he's himself uh, looking to become a scientist, he writes, and he it's the concept of Jahangir Saab, natural disasters within the context of the world we find. But he's referring back to the time of the advent of the promised Messiah, where within the 
his coming, there were certain signs which would manifest themselves, including earthquakes which would occur. And whilst we accept that and we also present that in justification of the truths of the promised Messiah, he then alludes to the fact that there's other places within the wider universe, for example, on the moon and other planets, where equally natural disasters, earthquakes including, do occur, perhaps, as he says in his question, without any kind of religious significance behind them. How do we sort of tally the two? You see, we could counter by saying, well, when criminals are put on the electric chair in America, we could say, well, that isn't a punishment because there are people being electrocuted left, right and centre. And this is just another electrocution, so this isn't really a punishment willed by anybody. But of course that would be very silly because <clears throat> we do know that there are entities there, authorities there that have uh, you know, organised the whole thing. And we know the reason why it's happening. But the end result is the same. One person is electrocuted by sheer you know, bad luck. Another, you know, for whatever reason, they're at, the, you know, at the, 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 the wrong place at the wrong time or whatever, because they're being silly and not taking the proper precautions. And another is being put to death for some crimes, terrible crimes that they've committed. But at the end of the day, they're all, you know, they're all dying. The result of it. Yes, it's all the same. So it doesn't mean, therefore, that because we see earthquakes happening everywhere, that some of them aren't willed. They can still be willed. But maybe we don't, we don't see the, the willing part of it happening, and so therefore we're, we're just assuming that all of this is of the same nature. Mm -hmm. Now having said that, <clears throat> it doesn't mean, of course, that every single earthquake or every single natural disaster that happens is there because there's some kind of a punishing intent behind it. It could be happening in a place where there aren't even any <clears throat> people. And this is, I think, what the question is, is, uh, is alluding to. So this is also a natural process. It's something which happens. And there are great benefits which are derived from these uh, occurrences by certain creatures. We know that some are wiped out, but others then benefit. So it's a cycle whereby you know, God sometimes makes some, makes some creatures benefit and sometimes others, who are perhaps even waiting for those uh, you know, cataclysms to occur so that they could benefit, that, because that's their nature. Mm -hmm. but we shouldn't also assume that on other planets there are not, there's not intelligent life. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, um, the idea is very much in vogue among the, you know, in the scientific world um, that um, there is intelligent life out there. There must be, it has to be there. And they're actively trying to seek it out. So if we, if we observe these um, you know, events happening on other planets, we, we can't assume that God isn't using those on those planets regarding some other creatures of his, which could be very different to us. They could be not even carbon-based, we don't know. Um, so we shouldn't assume anything. We should, we should you know, try to be, avoid that, because when we make false assumptions, then the whole premise that we're building our argument on is very shaky. We should be open to the possibilities of these things. Now, when, well, I just wanted to end off on this. It's that when a prophet of God says that but now that I've come, God has told me that if you don't accept me, then these things are going to happen. Mm. And they're going to happen with this frequency. And then you see the frequency of these events increasing, as he had said. This is a very falsifiable thing, which is a scientific principle. But if it's falsifiable, then it's worth looking into. Because if these things don't happen and the mm. contrary happens, for example, that earthquakes become even more rare and uh, you know, mm. the, the uh, pestilence, etc., doesn't appear, 
or you know, all these other things which he predicted don't take place, then the prophecy has been falsified and the person has been falsified and that's the end of it. Mm -hmm. But if they are happening, to try and explain it away is disingenuous to say the least because you can't have your cake and eat it too. Mm. Either the person is, is true or he's false and the, the, the outcome of the prophecy will decide that, you know. But then to brush it all away and say, oh well, you know, these things are happening all the time, you mm. know, and so therefore this has no significance. Then we come back to the, to the, 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 the case which I presented before. People are being electrocuted all the time, so why should this one be taken to be anything different? You know, there is an intent and a will behind it. And in the case of God, God is saying, I have willed this. Whether you can see that or not, but what you will see is that what my prophet has said is going to come true. Now, if you want to reject that, that's your problem. Mm -hmm. But you will, there will be a consequence to pay for that later on, you see. So it, it, we should also always err on the side of caution and uh, see whether what he says comes true. And if it does, then we should accept him. That's the easiest way to deal with uh, the coming of a prophet. Zakamala, and just on that <coughs> point, uh, if I may, the other thing which is often f forgotten by the critics of religion and those who challenge the authenticity of a prophet's message, we're not just talking about one sign. There's a series of signs. There's a series of qualifications, if I could put it that way, which actually justify a prophet making a claim or a, in the case of the promised Messiah, his claim wasn't just about this happening. It was a series of events, a series of conditions prevailing, and indeed prophecies about future events and occurrences as well, as earthquakes was just one example. Absolutely. The promised Messiah's ultimate, you know, the, the, the purpose for which he was commissioned as the promised Messiah and Imam Mahdi was to carry on the task for which the, promise, uh, the Prophet Muhammad wasalam, he came for and to mm. reform the Muslims because there was a prophecy uh, by, made by the Prophet Muhammad wasalam, that Muslims would deviate from their religion as all religions, as, the, as, as was the case with all religions. But he said that this individual would come to unite Muslims and ultimately the whole of mankind once again. Now one um, revelation I just want to mention here is uh, which was vouchsafed to the promised Messiah in regards to not only earthquakes but such disasters that would take place mm -hmm. in the world and that is I mean uh, I may get the wording slightly incorrect but the, the crux of it is that dunya mein ek nazir aya. a warner came into the world par dunya ne usko kabool na kiya, but the world did not accept him accept him lekin khuda usko kabool karega but god will accept him aur bade zor aur hamlon se uski sachai zahir kar dega he will establish his truth through many marvelous signs, very um, strong signs. But it's all our hamlon, sorry. Very um, uh, significant, significant, marvelous sort of um, attacks, strong attacks. Strong attacks. Yes. Now, <clears throat> what we, this last bit of this, uh, you know, if you ponder over this revelation, you can understand that he will establish his truth by means of these hamlet, these attacks. If there is no one left in the world, then there is no one to prove the, you know, the truthfulness of the promised Messiah Islam. So it doesn't mean that these attacks are coming to completely wipe out humanity or to destroy humanity. You, you know, even us human beings, when we want to make an emphasis, you know, we raise our voice. Or at times, if we're speaking to a child, you know, you know, he will be slightly jolted, you know, just to, you know, get his attention. For instance, if he's running towards a fire, you will grab that child and you'll pull him back. In the same way, God Almighty, because man is leading himself towards destruction, he. It, this is a sort of jolt, you know, that God Almighty is giving to the world. 
that this is your last chance. And the Prophet has alluded to this, that these are the last 1,000 years for mankind to rectify you know, himself. If mankind reforms you know, itself properly mm. in these 1,000 years, then there is a chance that these you know, uh, signs of uh, you know, that strong attacks which, the, which God Almighty promised uh, to the promised Messiah, maybe these can come down as a means of, you know, uh, as, as, as a proof of accepting the promised Messiah But the purpose of these signs, and that's the point I'm trying to make, is that it's a wake-up call for the whole of humanity to recognize the promised Messiah and ultimately the Prophet Muhammad Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, thank you for that and my thanks also to Rahman Abbas for the question. Um, I'm going to try and fit in one other question which is a bit of a quick fire as I term it often which comes from Suhail Ahmed Saab from South London. Um, he's asking about adornments but he's talking specifically Jahangir Saab about ear studs that quite often it's a fashion statement um, and more recently, I, I say recently, it's probably now over several decades that you've seen that what was once perceived that you would see certainly in the UK more women wearing earrings. You now actually see a lot of men wearing ear studs. Um, yet actually, you know, adornments such as ear studs or earrings actually we find in other cultures where both men and women pl played it. I'm looking back at the Mughal Empire, for example, in India. He's saying that he doesn't find uh, or hasn't found as yet a convincing answer as to why these the wearing of, say, an ear stud for a man is not permitted within Islam? Well, you see, I'd like, I'd like to answer this in the words of a very wise four-year-old American girl who <clears throat> was told by one of the little boys at her play school that she's ugly. And so she answered him back. And her mother then filmed it and it, became, it went viral uh, on YouTube, mm. etc. And she said, well, so what did you tell him? She said, I haven't come here to make a fashion statement. I've come here to learn, you know? So that sums it all up. Mm. If this thing is just a fashion statement, mm. then it's something vain. Why waste our time with that? If even a four-year-old can understand that, then I don't see why somebody older couldn't. And when we know that Allah has said, hum muridun, the, the believers are those who turn away from anything vain, they shun anything vain. Vain meaning anything which has no purpose, which has no benefit. <clears throat> it's just, sorry, it's just done for the sake of itself. Mm -hmm. um, then they'll turn away from that. I really can't see any value in having a stud in an ear. You know, I mean, if it's a man. If it's a lady, then they use it for beautification. There's a, at least there's a purpose. Mm. But for, for men to do it, we really don't see what the purpose could be. It's, it is one of those vain things. So I think people should just get on with their lives, you know, and uh, not go for things which are purposeless in reality. We shouldn't follow everything in the, in the community that we live in. We should only follow those things which are beneficial and which have some kind of a purpose. But for this, I don't think, uh, because look, let's be clear, there are so many millions of men out there who are living without studs in their ears and they're living very well, thank you. <laughs> so why have, should we go for that, you know? And with that, we come to the end of today's programme. I would like to thank our panellists and say Jazakumullah to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.